Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. There were four tournaments this week on the ATP Tour, and I'm going to get to three of them in this show. I'm going to break down three finals, the, the three that took place Sunday, with apologies to Roberto Bautista Agut and his fans, with congratulations to Roberto Bautista Agut and his fans for uh, winning Doha and beating Nicolas Basilashvili. I will be uh, delving into the other three finals from this week, starting with Carlos Alcaraz and his victory over Diego Schwartzman in Rio de Janeiro, the ATP 500 on clay, which was ravaged by rain this week. But uh, Alcaraz with a very convincing victory over Schwartzman, youngest ever ATP 500 champion, and I'm going to talk about his drop shot. Needs to be discussed. Must, must, must be discussed. Then we will go to Marseille, blockbuster final there between uh, Felix Ojealiassime in another final, looking for his second title in as many weeks, but he was taken out by Andre Rublev, who wins his first title since Rotterdam of last year. It had been a while, and uh, the backhand down the line is going to be what I highlight in that match from Andre Rublev and dominating those backhand-to-backhand exchanges. Then I will uh, I will hit on Delray to end. Another repeat finalist, Riley Opelka, and just like Felix lost this week in the final uh, Riley Opelka did as well to Cam Nori, who, similar to Rublev, was uh, in much need of this kind of result after a difficult start to 2022. So all of that coming up after a shout-out to Player Court, the place to go if you need a local coach, a practice partner, or a match. I've been playing a lot more recently. I'm rounding back into form, everyone. And and some of that, a lot of that is thanks to player court. Um, Number one reason people quit tennis is that people can't find anyone to play with. And I don't want that to happen to you. So I've arranged a 50% discount for you to join the player court community. And you can get that discount if you use the special link in the description, playercourt.com backslash Gil Gross, get the practices and the matches you need to improve your game. All right, let's start with Alcaraz, shall we? And I think the hardest thing about playing Diego Schwartzman on clay is is probably finishing points. With his speed and his defense and the slower conditions and the way he's able to trade with the depth that that he has. It's very difficult to find ways, and the fact that his shot tolerance is impeccable, it's very difficult to find ways to finish points on your ter- terms on any slow court surface, such as the surface in Rio de Janeiro and that red clay over there in, by the way, heavy, rainy conditions. The Carlos Alcaraz drop shot was without a doubt the solution to that in this match. And and his drop shot is something that I have taken notice of before this match. In fact, I was on a podcast and I'm not really sure which one it was, but I was actually asked after gushing about Alcaraz and talking about how good I thought he was going to be in 2022. And I, I started the year, I predicted him 
to uh, end this year at number seven in the world. And that's looking pretty good so far. I think that's still looking about right. And I might make a video midway through the week uh, revisiting that top 10 prediction for fun. I know I'm going to do that at some point. Well, I was asked, what is your favorite Carlos Alcaraz shot? What stands out? And I didn't want to be boring. And I'm like, you know what? The forehand drop shot is what I said. We are going to see that shot play a major role in Carlos Alcaraz's ability to attack short balls and his offensive game. It's a, it's a shot that is unbelievably well-tuned. And the first thing is a sense of court position and understanding where your opponent is and feeling that at all times. And every single time Alcaraz goes to the drop shot, first of all, it never seems to be forced. It's always Carlos in a decent position, either on top of the baseline or inside the baseline. And every single time his opponent retreats too far back, Alcaraz seems to take out the drop shot like he has, like the game is in slow motion, like he has a bird's eye view of the court and he just feels where his opponent is positionally. And Schwartzman is a player who um, will often like to drop back to maximize his court coverage, does it very effectively. And he just wasn't able to do it in this match because every time he did, Alcaraz would come up with the drop shot and the execution was perfect almost every single time. In fact, every single time except one time. Points one on the Alcaraz drop, drop shot. He tried nine of them. He won eight points. Now, it was a somewhat short match. I know that feels like, uh, like almost like it was infrequent. Um, let me let me actually get the uh, total points won in this match so we can kind of get a, uh, a percentage for you. So it, it feels like it was infrequent, but when you have a play that is that efficient, it works almost every single time. And by the way, it wasn't just that Alcaraz won the point. Uh, they were all winners or virtual winners. The ones that weren't winners were like tip of frame, Schwartzman not even close to getting the ball back in the court. Total points won. Alcaraz won 60 points. So that's one in six points won. Again, short match, only 99 points played. Score line 6-4, 6-2. Those nine drop shots, eight of them won, eight of them essentially winners. Very, very key. It's versatile as well. I tracked of those eight winning drop shots. Well, where did they come from? Two of them were midcourt forehands, shots that Alcaraz is probably going to hit an approach shot. And he went to the drop shot on the forehand side. Winning positions, very much finishing positions, and he cashed in both times. One of them was a uh, forehand inside out from the baseline. That's a kind of a weird drop shot to pull off. Two of them were forehand down the line from the baseline. And then three of them were backhands down the line from the baseline. So most of them forehands. 
And notice when I was asked on that podcast, what is your favorite Carlos Alcaraz shot? I said forehand drop shot. I didn't just say drop shot because there are a lot of players on tour who hit great drop shots and they hit them with frequency. Novak Djokovic, Jensen Brooksby, Philip Krajinovic, Francis Tiafo. Backhand drop shot, those are all, you know, those are all players. They they go to it over and over again. It's a very common play for them. There are not a lot of guys who love their forehand drop shot because it's harder. The difference between a backhand grip and a continental grip or a slice grip, right, which is interchangeable, but just to change the verbiage a little bit, they're very close. The backhand grip and the continental, very close. The forehand grip and the continental, much further away for the vast majority of players. Gone are the days of of continental grip forehands. So as a result, I think because of that grip change, it's more difficult to disguise. The, The grip change is more drastic. It's tougher to hit the forehand drop shot, and it is not as popular amongst players. For Alcaraz, it's the side that he goes to it more on, and it's more potent as well because the contrast is bigger. The forehand is this massive weapon that he can hit when he's trying to finish with it, depending on how far back he is, between 85 and 100 miles per hour. And it's very tempting to try to, when Alcaraz loads up his forehand, to retreat when when you know you're going to be having to play some defense. So this was massive for Alcaraz. It completely stood out. The execution was flawless every single time, and he won eight of nine points. But by the way, and this is why uh, where I want to go to the film on this real quick, if you were to make an adjustment for Schwartzman, if you were to tell him, cover the drop shot, Diego, you're getting killed. It's a winner every time. Do something about it. Well, here's the problem with that. By the end of the match, Schwartzman was well aware of the Alcaraz drop shots, and you did see him at times adjust his court position. But there's a trade-off. Um, this was a point, uh, two points away from the match for Alcaraz, and Schwartzman sliding backwards here is going to kind of dink this forehand on the run. He's in a really tough position here, and this ball's landing very, very short. So what Schwartzman would ordinarily do after hitting this very short and weak forehand is is go take his first step backwards. But instead, he actually takes his first step forwards. And he's going to hold his position on the baseline. And Alcaraz is stepping into a midcourt forehand here. And Schwartzman's on top of the baseline with the line open. So this is going to be an easy forehand winner for Alcaraz. I mean, Schwartzman can't get anywhere near it. And, and look at this. Alcaraz hits this two and a half to three feet inside the sideline and the baseline. He doesn't need to place it well because Schwartzman is in no position to defend. And that's because he's worried about the Alcaraz drop shot. That is why he doesn't retreat and give himself a better chance to defend. So it's a big problem. It's not an easy fix. You can't just move up. You can, but Alcaraz is going to start to find more forehand winners and backhand winners, uh, baseline winners, if you move up. Cheers, espresso. Um, 
the the other thing I want to talk about when it comes to well, first I'll finish with the match, and then I'm going to talk about the rain and the crazy week in Rio. Um, a couple of other notes. I thought Schwartzman was expecting to settle into backhand to backhand rallies, and he felt like he was going to have the edge there. He's he would be more consistent on the backhand. He would, and and you know early on in this match, actually, if you asked me after the first three games who I thought would win, I actually thought Diego would win after the first three games. Um, I didn't have a pick in my head going in, but I watched the first couple games and I'm like, you know what? I think Alcaraz is about to learn a lesson about the importance of being solid on a surface this slow against a great mover like Schwartzman. But instead, Alcaraz was able to find his finishes all the time. But in the backhand, a backhand rally, which I think Schwartzman was very confident he was going to be able to get the better of, Carlos did a really good job of imposing his will and using his power in that exchange and going hard down the line, not close to the line, not ne- not necessarily to finish, but just to, to break that cross-court pattern with really, really pacey backhands through the middle of the court to down the line uh, to to go at Schwartzman's forehand with a ton of weight and heaviness. And uh, that was a, a great pattern changer. And I feel like Carlos made a statement in that exchange and was like, I have serious power off this wing and I'm going to make you feel it. And you're not going to get a comfortable backhand to backhand exchange, even though Diego's backhand is more machine-like, more consistent, gets more uh, precision, I would say, on that backhand side. Carlos was like, look, you're going to feel my power if you're just going to expect to to, uh, engage in this cross court. Uh, Alcaraz was also able to use his serve pretty well um, in some key moments. And I was interested going into this match in the Alcaraz serve versus the Schwartzman serve because I knew that this was going to be a very return-heavy match on the clay with the way these two return. But... I was curious, what is Alcaraz's serve going to look like against Schwartzman's return on the clay? And you know what? He got enough. He got more out of his serve than Schwartzman did. And there were some key moments here, like um, in the first three games of the second set, they were breaking back and forth. Break, break, break. And then Alcaraz was in a hole on his serve at 1530 was looking like four consecutive breaks. Alcaraz hit three consecutive service winners there. Now, these were returnables, but I thought that broke Schwartzman's will. And I thought that was the moment where Alcaraz won the match. When Schwartzman had 15-30 and Alcaraz hit three unreturned serves in a row, that is what took the wind out of the sails of Diego Schwartzman, who had spent over five hours on court the previous day. Um, Alcaraz uh, then broke at love the next game. Then there was a chance that maybe Schwartzman will get back on serve in the third set. And at 30-all, 4-2, Alcaraz serving, uh, he hit another service winner on return serve and held on the very next point. Alcaraz is still not hitting his spots very well. Alcaraz is still not serving at a great percentage. But just the speed that he was able to bring on his serve did enough to get Schwartzman to miss a couple of returns in pockets, sometimes, occasionally. That is more than Schwartzman can say. The Schwartzman serve never, ever 
even occasionally really made a dent in the Alcaraz return in a, in a significant way or in a clutch moment. So that, that makes a difference there. That is uh, important. The last thing is the rain and the fatigue. And uh, Schwartzman might have been a little bit tired, but Alcaraz had every right to be tired coming into this match as well. Alcaraz is 18 years old. He showed this week that he is a physical anomaly because most 18-year-olds would have crumbled in this spot. Most 18-year-olds are not developed physically to the point of being able to handle all the tennis that was condensed into the end of the week, the last couple days in Rio because of how much it rained early in the week. That's just a fact. Uh, and there could be some sort of like a false, a false notion that being young helps in a situation like this. Not that young. Go back and, and look at what Alexander Zverev looked like, what Stefano Tsitsipas looked like, what Matteo Berrettini looked like. Go back and see um, what Andre Rublev looked like at 18 years old. And then you tell me if they looked like athletes that were ready to handle seven hours of tennis in two days. No. No. Alcaraz is different. He is different. It is not youth. Being 18 does not help. Being Carlos Alcaraz is what helps. And remember at the beginning of the year, we talked about his decision that he made to not play any of the warm-up tournaments before the Australian Open and to work on his on building up his body for weeks like this. Boom. And now he's got to turn around and play Acapulco. That should be very, very tough, but we will see how he does. Uh, moving on to Marseille. And Andre Rublev wins this. It's been a tough stretch for Andre Rublev recently. It's his first title since Rotterdam, as I said at the top. But it might have been tougher than, than we realized. And I'm not positive about this, but I'm just going to show you Andre Rublev's post on social media after winning this match. It says, he or he said, Through the pain that we share, always keep light inside. Black heart. Number nine, and a picture of him holding the trophy. I mean, I, I don't know what that's about, folks, but um, if that is tennis-related, if that has nothing to do with, and, and I, I tweeted out what's up with this caption, I wanted to see if people had theories, and some people said uh, this might have something to do with the Russia-Ukraine thing going on. Some people said this might have something to do with the Camila Valieva and Russian women's figure skating thing going on. But I think most assume, and I think Eileen, that this kind of weird, dark post had to do with tennis. And the fact that he has not had the results that he had hoped for in the last maybe six to nine months, probably dating back, if you go, you know, maybe after Monte Carlo, and beyond, I think it's been somewhat of a struggle for Rublev. Or you know what? No, because he was amazing in Cincinnati. Made the final there. So, yeah, I, I think probably since Cincinnati, things have been frustrating. And he did look very unhappy on the court. 
uh, through the latter stages of 2021. And this year was tough for him with the, the Marin Cilic loss in Australia. But I didn't know, you know, I didn't know he was that down on himself um, to, to make a post like that after winning. And then I know there's also some some sense that Rublev is like an emo. Uh, I mean, again, this is online stuff. No comment. I just wanted to bring that to your attention that this win, uh, he seemed genuinely very, very happy afterwards. And, and I'm, I'm, I was happy to see that because uh, I do think that perhaps this has been weighing on him more than uh, than we've realized. Um, the backhand wing for Andre stood out in this match. It dominated. It controlled the match. And that's what I want to start with. Felix is a player whose uh, best attribute is his ability to hit his forehand from the backhand side of the court, from the ad side. To hit his inside outs, to hit his inside ins, to control with that forehand. And as a result, with his footwork, and I know that there were key matches throughout this year where I have talked about Felix's footwork as a, a key, a key to winning the match in, in his uh, quarterfinal where he almost beat Medvedev in Australia. This was a key. And uh, against Tsitsipas, this was at times a key as well. I mean, it, it's always a key. Felix using his feet to find forehands. It's very difficult yeah, Felix hit way more forehands than he did backhands against Tsitsipas. Number wasn't even close. And Tsitsipas was not quite as strong in that ratio, uh, for example. So it's very hard to get it to Felix's backhand. And you don't want him hitting forehands from the ad side of the court. But he cheats with his footwork. He leans that way. He leans to his left. He split steps in the ad court. He doesn't recover the middle. And that leaves an opening, and in this match, I think he felt like if he got it to Rublev's backhand, that he could expect a cross-court reply. And Andre had other plans here. So let's go to the footage here. I have a lot of points to show you where, again, so here's um, here's a really good backhand cross-court by Felix, a backhand uh, return, I believe this is actually. And he hits a good return, a beautiful one, and he's not going to go to the middle here. Felix is thinking, I just hit a really good return, so I'm just going to chill here, basically with one foot on the, with my left foot on the sideline. I'm not even going to try to get to the middle, and I'll probably get a first ball forehand here that's attackable. Well, Rublev says, damn right you're going to get a forehand. I'm going down the line. I, and look, he's on his back foot. I mean, Felix has a lot of reason to assume that he's going to go cross-court here. But Rublev goes down the line, and instead of Oje Aliasim, after his great return, getting a ball to attack, instead, FAA's got a running forehand here, and he's going to need to defend cross-court. And Rublev now controls the point with his forehand. Now we go to 5-all, and um, here's another example of Felix split stepping in the ad court and Rublev using that backhand down the line and this time hitting a clean winner. I'm not going to let you get away with that FAA. Here we go again. Uh Felix backhand cross court to the Rublev backhand. And I remember this rally on break point 
for Rublev. I remember this was a long backhand-to-backhand exchange, and Felix was just waiting for his chance to run around and hit a forehand. Rublev goes down the line with his backhand first, and Felix just isn't recovering here. That's a clean winner on the backhand down the line for Rublev. Now, I also want to show you some examples of when Rublev does not use this tactic, does not go down the line with his backhand. And one of the examples is he did it a couple times in this game where he was serving for the match at 5-4 in the second, and he got tight in this game. So Felix has a backhand, and Felix goes cross-court, and look, it's the same thing. He's not recovering to the middle. But this time, Rublev, who's tight, serving for the match, and is down triple break point, goes back cross-court and allows FAA this attacking forehand, and now Felix goes inside in and hits the clean winner. So when Rublev doesn't go down the line, he pays the price. It's what he's got to do. Here's another one, by the way, um, on this key break point uh, and set point in the second set, one of the most important points of the match, in fact. OJ Aliassim set point to win the second set, and what do we have here? Another forced error on the backhand with Felix just not recovering to the middle of the court and Rublev making Felix pay with his backhand down the line. Um, that squash shot by FAA missed. That was absolutely enormous, that ba- that backhand down the line for Rublev. And by the way, um, Felix on the backhand side as well was not good. In fact, there was something going on with Felix's backhand. It just wasn't right. Uh, the balance was off a lot of the time. The He just didn't look comfortable. And he missed way too many backhands in this match. So ultimately, on the ad side of the court, between the damage that Rublev did and the inconsistency that Felix brought, it, it was... Uh, it, it was an absolute domination on on the ad side exchanges for Rublev. And that was, in my opinion, the biggest reason why he came away from the match. I also thought Rublev served very well. And I, I continue to see a pattern that he serves a lot better indoors. And he's able to do much more damage with his first serve indoors. And I'm not, you know, I think everyone, all good servers like indoor conditions, but Rublev, it just seems to be a little bit accentuated. I also thought Andre looked to be a little bit fresher. I liked the way he moved in this match, looking very explosive. Seemed like FAA maybe didn't have half a step. I don't think that... I don't think that it was anything... I don't know. uh, It's not like he couldn't have won the match in the physical condition he was or or the... the amount of energy he had. It looked like there was a little bit missing, but again, he had set, you know, he played well enough to beat a lot of players and Rublev played a really good match. And I don't think that, I don't think that a lot of credit should be taken away from Andre here because Felix might've been tired, but it has been a lot of tennis, obviously going all the way in Rotterdam and then playing some tough matches in, in Marseille. And Rublev did look a little bit fresher in this one. As far as the second set, Felix should have broken at 5-6. And I know I, I showed you that 30-40 point where Rublev uh, hit that 
backhand down the line forced error. But there were a couple of other opportunities in that game where Felix missed returns. He overcooked an inside-out forehand return on another break point in that game. And uh, he should not have, uh, he shouldn't have lost that game. And then he dipped at the start of the tie break. And that disappointment kind of carried over. And that is where you do wonder about the mental fatigue because he just, he didn't shake that off as well. And he made a lot of mistakes and unforced errors early on in that second set tie break. I also thought that Rublev was really good hitting uh, aggressive second serve returns, starting points, starting those return points offensively as Andre needs to do with his skill set. Again, something I, I've seen him do really, really well indoors for the most part. In those still and quiet conditions, Andre is able to shrink the margins and go for a lot on his return. It's one of the features of his games. One of the best parts of Rublev's game is how well he aggressively hits his second serve returns. And he takes those balls, uh, takes the balls on very early. Felix missed too many second serve returns. And he accepted too many backhands. So uh, in the second set, especially, FAA did not return the second serve well. And that was another factor. So uh, Rublev wins. This one was was pretty convincing. Really good performance from Andre. And uh, now let's see how he carries on in, um, in some of the less favorable conditions. Because Rublev on an indoor hard court, I think, uh, I think that's as ideal as it gets for him. Looking forward to seeing what he does at uh, Miami and Indian Wells. Let's end in Delray with Cam Norrie and Riley Opelka. And I won't go too long on this match. Don't have too much to say. It wasn't a great match. Not great. Um, I thought of all of the matches, you notice there were uh, there were players who came in with reason to be tired. Schwartzman, given he played two super long matches the day before the final. Uh, Felix, given he made the Rotterdam final the week prior. And Opelka, given he made the uh, Dallas final the week prior. Of all of those players, the only guy who really looked cooked was Opelka. Opelka looked... A little bit cooked. Didn't have much. Especially in the second set. After doing quite a bit of running in the first set. With that being said. Cam Nori was incredibly opportune. The key obviously against Opelka. Is. You're not going to get that many of his returns back in play. When you do get your return back in play. You have to be opportune and win. The rally. You have to win the point. And the trouble is, almost uh, almost any top player will win the majority of points. The trouble is, oftentimes it's not enough. Um, it's not enough to win 55% of your rallies against a Riley Opelka. It might not even be enough to win 60% of your rallies against Opelka. Cam Nori absolutely dominated. I ran the numbers and when the return came back in play off of either serve, so this is Opelka getting the return back, this is Nori getting the return back in the court. In those points, so 
points, three shots or more. 62-33, Nori. That is not easy to do against Opelka. It is not easy to dominate him to that extent. Because Riley, here's the thing. And by the way, I'm very high on Opelka at the moment. I think he's playing great. And I stand by what I've said about him in the last year and a half going back, which is that he will be in the top 10 at some point. He will have a better career than John Isner, in my opinion, when it's all said and done. And we're starting to see things come together for him. And the thing is with Riley is his movement is serviceable. He moves much better than John. His movement is, can get it done. He can stay in a rally. It's not above average. It might not even be average. But I would probably say Opelka's movement is kind of slightly below average or regularly below average. It is not a a liability to the point where uh to the point where he can't stay in baseline rallies from a neutral position. Neither wing represents a liability either. I think John's backhand is a place where you can go and you can really exploit, especially when he's on the run, Isner's backhand is a liability. Riley's backhand is not. In fact, it's his more solid wing. His forehand can go completely off the rails, but it hasn't at all in these last two weeks. So there's nowhere to really go. His movement is serviceable, and he doesn't donate. Riley Opelka doesn't donate that much when his intentions are neutral. Now, he can get a little bit aggressive. He can get a little bit trigger happy. And then you can get misses from him. But when Opelka wants to hang tough and stay in a point, he can actually do it. So from the baseline, he's not comparable to Ivo Karlovich. He's not comparable to John Isner. Um, he's, I would say his he, again, he's more even off of both wings than Milos Raonic, who has that backhand issue. I'd say he moves as well as Milos Raonic. Um, this is a player who's not easy to dominate to that extent from the baseline. So Nori was really, really impressive in this match. Again, 62-33 to 33 when returns came back. I thought that Nori did a great job of keeping Opelka moving, keeping him on the run, using his precision, using his directional variety, going down the line often, hitting angle cross court, keeping Opelka on the move and barely ever missing in doing so. Opelka's legs were gone by the second set. He did a lot of running in the first. Uh, Nori got into a ton of rallies with Riley. Uh, again, very few unforced errors, lots of intention, lots of great precision moving the ball around the court. And in the second set, Opelka was no longer really willing to do that running and actually started going for broke more. It actually made him a little bit more effective. He was probably a more dangerous player in the second set when he had no legs and he was just going after it and came up with some very came up with some some punishing offense from the back of the court from difficult positions did Opelka and 
got to a tie break. Um, but yeah, it, it did feel like Nori was the better player. It felt like Opelka was slightly fortunate to get to tie breaks in both sets. Um, because Nori really wasn't a lot of service games. And, uh, I mean, in the first set tiebreak, it was not close. It was 7-1. Uh, five returns came back in play between both players. Nori won all five of those points, and all five were Opelka misses. Opelka mistakes. No good. Um, and then at the end of the second set tiebreak, Opelka hit a, uh, a backhand slice short, and Nori came up with a nice chip charge, backhand volley winner. And then um, at 4-6, Opelka hit, uh, hit a backhand long, and that was the match. So the, 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 there's a bit of microanalysis for the tiebreak, but uh, it was a bit of a, it's a bit of a sleepy match where it felt like Nori really had uh, much more juice in the rallies, had the better of that, and Opelka just hanging in there by the skin of his teeth with his serve. Uh, but a get-right result for Cam Nori. A get-right result after a tough start to the year going 0-3 against really strong opponents at ATP Cup. Really awful loss to Korda in the way he played in the first round of the Australian Open. So uh, really important result for Cam Nori as he heads to Indian Wells. He's actually not defending those points because they won't come off of his ranking, the Indian Wells points, until October uh, but two two tournaments that he should be able to do very well on, on slow American hard courts in Indian Wells and Miami. So uh, important that Nori got his confidence back, and I think he did that here. And uh, Opelka should also hold his head high because I do think he was out of gas in this one, and he's had a really awesome two weeks that showed a lot from Opelka's perspective. All right. Um, that will do it. I will say next week is going to be a bit of an off week uh, for content. I'm taking a little bit of a break uh, before I uh, have a week at Tennis Channel. And then and then March will be, of course, busy with Indian Wells and Miami. So uh, not sure what next week holds, but um, I think uh, we will see. We'll see what I can do, of course, as always. Appreciate you guys. Thank you for watching. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.